Hi, I'm Ian Turner, and thank you for choosing to listen to this extended version of Garden of Sound. You can find practically every song mentioned in this program in a show-specific playlist on the Garden of Sound website. That's gardenofsound.nz. Why aren't the songs in the show? It's because musical artists deserve to be paid for their work, and it's not economically viable for this program to secure those rights on an ongoing basis. So just head to gardenofsound.nz right now and look for the artist or guest you're listening to today. Thanks for being here. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Garden of Sound, presented by The Nephilist. I'm your host, Ian Turner. This week on the show, I'm talking to Jonathan Denson. He was born in Christchurch. He spent many years on the road in some of Australasia's biggest music theatre productions. And as a result of a life-changing medical diagnosis, he was spurred on to deliver a stunning debut album entitled, I'm Saying It Now. You're listening to the Garden of Sound interview with Jonathan Denson. So just tell me about the, the family makeup. Were your mum and dad musical? Uh, my dad was a composer and a jazz pianist. And in the 70s, he was the musical director of television shows like Popco. Because back in those days, the local musicians used to come in and sing the famous tunes because they didn't have videos. So local guys like Leon Kearns and Mark Antony and people like that would come in and they'd sing whatever hit songs were on. Uh, like I remember someone singing that Boz Skaggs tune, you know, um, you know, close the window, come at night. Um, just local guys, and so Dad was the musical director of that. And yeah, he plays with all the, with all those jazz guys. He was one of the the core of jazz folks back then: Stu Buchanan and Ian Edwards and Malcolm McNeil and all all that that crowd. What was your first ever musical memory? My first ever musical memory, I think, might well be our living room full of musicians because they were rehearsing for a band. They had a band called the Jiffy Band. And I remember them um, rehearsing and, and taking up our whole living room all weekend. My other, other really strong musical memory, um, I always remember coming home from playing soccer on a Saturday morning and getting out that disc with the apple on it, the green apple, and putting it down um, to play because we had two Beatles records, uh, Abbey Road and Sgt. Pepper's, and we just played them over and over again. And I remember that very, very distinctly. And also because you couldn't, do you playlists then dad did his own um mixtapes which he called the world's greatest songs and he'd done cassette tapes and he had seven or eight of them that he'd curated and dubbed over and and then because he was a graphic artist so he'd also done detailed all the um the liner notes and stuff about each tune and so i've forgotten about this and that ended up massively influencing my taste in music. That, if you like, greatest hits, because we had we had hundreds and hundreds of records, um, which we didn't go through. But I used to go back to these what he'd chosen as his best songs ever, and and through that is where I heard so much music that you know kids my age didn't get to hear. So when did you start your musical journey? I think I started violin when I was four. And then I started, I had to stop because my teacher moved away. Then I started piano when I was six, I think. Um, and I was never a very good piano student. I always came up okay playing. And, and by the time I got to the exams, I could play the pieces pretty well. Um, I'd get like, you know, 
16 out of 20 or whatever for my pieces, which is good but not spectacular. And I'd get maybe 6 out of 10 for my scales and 2 out of 10 for sight reading because I was hopeless. I always got 10 for oral. Sight reading, hopeless. To this day, I can sight read. I'm pretty good at sight reading a right-hand lead line. If I look at a piece of music, it's got the chords um, and the black dots. I can kind of use the black dots as a bit of a style guide. Um, but I'm not. I'm not going to play the chords voiced exactly the way that the dots are. Music is a massive part of your life. Was there anything else that you excelled at, or you thought you'd do when you were growing up? Well, you know, I thought I was going to be a doctor there for a bit. I did six subjects at school, so you know, I did all the extra sciences. But then halfway through the the the, the middle term, um, I'm doing physics, and I'm just terrible at physics. And my physics teacher, Mr. Squires, who also took their first eleven soccer team at Boys High. He just leaned over as I was struggling with this work and he goes, if you don't want to come to this class, you don't have to, and kept walking. (laughs) So I didn't go for the rest of the year. Yeah, so I gave that up, um, being a doctor. Um, And then there was a new drama program starting at the University of Canterbury. And because my mother was a lecturer, she lectured in the education department, but she was also a co-founder of the Feminist Studies Department at the University of Canterbury. And she knew that there was a drama program starting, not an acting program, but a drama program with practical components. And she said, it's going to be ready to go year after next. It starts at level two. Um, I think you should ditch your last year at school and just go to university because I'd done advanced literature at school with because uh, we had a special class for that, that Bruce Harding taught. And so we were doing university level stuff and uh, she said because you're going to be an actor anyway aren't you I went yeah she said we'll get on with it then so what sort of groups were you involved with hardly any well I did quite a bit of cabaret stuff at university um, we'd put together groups and um, try and go and earn money we we, we we had one one cabaret that we put together at Sir Laugh-a-Lot's restaurant if um, anybody will remember that uh, it was a medieval themed dinner restaurant uh, we put that cabaret together and that was with the MUSOC, um, Musical Society at um, Music Theatre Society at Canterbury, which is still going strong. I did like three or four shows with them and also about ten plays with the drama. So with bands, I was in a funk band for a very short time and then I played a lot of piano bar and did uh, restaurant bar um, sort of work. Um, would get me through university. Really. So who were your uh, influences growing up musically? Well, the biggest one is definitely the Beatles, although it wasn't until later that I saw how much of an influence they were on my writing because I never, when I was writing a tune, I never thought, oh, this is kind of going to be a bit Beatlesy. But they were definitely the biggest influence in my life as a youngster and then Billy Joel. So basically every song and every word written by the Beatles or Billy Joel, I can give you. Fantastic. Is there a track you'd like to play of the Beatles? Yeah, I think with, with the Beatles, I'm definitely a Paul guy. Not that I, not that I don't like John's stuff. I, I, I like it all. I, and I knew every song of the early records. I'd know it all. And I could play George's um, solo, every single one of them, note for note on the tennis racket. Um, but I always found the songs that stick with me the most are the ones with the, with the more melody and the more heart. And I know John was supposedly the the risk taker and all that stuff and day in the life for example is just an incredible song and so is strawberry fields and so many great john songs but i'm more of a paul 
guy in the sense that I'm, I guess I'm a little sentimental. No, I'm definitely sentimental. And I just love a good melody. And also his voice is so beautiful. Um, it's always amazing. And you listen back to their early records when he was doing, he was doing rock screaming, you know, way before Deep Purple and all those guys were doing it. Paul was actually doing it, but just not all the time. Um, he's an incredible singer. Um, and a wonderful songwriter. So uh, the song, when I think about it, what's the one that just takes me back to that childhood happy place, I'd have to say, uh, Long and Winding Road. You're listening to the Garden of Sound interview with Jonathan Denson. What was the first musical gig, concert or event that you attended? Christchurch Town Hall, 1985. Four bands, four legendary New Zealand bands. The Netherworld Dancing Toys, the Wastrels, can't remember one, and um, my heroes, the Mockers. I loved the Mockers. They were the only band of the whole influences. There were only two bands in the whole of the 80s. I went through my whole teenage years hating every single song on the radio. All of it. Wouldn't it be good? It's just awful. And even now you come back to go, oh, maybe it wasn't so bad. And it was just, no, it's all still awful. Anyway, the Mockers. I love the Mockers. Even though Andrew Fagan's not much of a singer, but there's just something about them. I like their songs. They had really good melodies. Um, you know, when I first set eyes on her, she didn't seem to see, was too involved in his. It's great. My girl thinks she's Cleopatra. Those were the days when you had favorite songs. Um, you kind of rooted for them the way you might for a football team. Like you, you'd wait for Ready to Roll to come on to see if your favourite song had climbed the charts, you know, because they'd do the countdown um, on Ready to Roll. Uh, yeah, so I remember when Forever Tuesday Morning came out and I bought the 12-inch blue vinyl single version of Forever Tuesday Morning. Yeah, still got it. It's under Mum's piano somewhere. Um yeah, so I, uh, that was my first big concert. And, and the, I think it was the Wastrels broke up on stage that night. One of them left. They didn't actually have a punch-up, but they had a huge argument, and one of them just left. That and the other one, so my first real big proper concert, of course, was Dire Straits in 86, when there were 63,000 people at Lancaster Park. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. I wasn't a big Dire Straits fan, in fact... The only, this is typical me. The only Dire Straits song I really liked was the soppy, sentimental one, um, Romeo and Juliet, which they didn't play at the concert. But anyway, so that was the first full-size rock concert I went to. Leads nicely into a band breaking up on stage. What's your worst musical moment? Yeah, I've had two. I got fired from two jobs, or effectively fired. One of them, I was playing Simon in a New Zealand tour of Jesus Christ Superstar. And when we went to Australia, um, I got demoted to um, the chorus and they brought someone else in to play Simon. Um, and when I was in Miss Saigon in Sydney, I was the first cover for the lead, uh, Chris. And I played it about 50 times and then they decided to go with Ben Harkin as the first cover. I swapped over and at the beginning of the year, we'd, we'd auditioned to see who would be the first her first cover and second cover. So I got that. That was pretty gut-wrenching, actually. So what have you learned from that? Learn to sing properly is what I've learned so that that doesn't happen again, and it hasn't happened again. I hadn't had proper singing lessons. I'd had a few, but I hadn't really, really trained. And so I went 
right, I'm going to do this properly and, and started taking, for want of a better word, formal singing lessons. I And I deliberately went to a range of teachers. I did quite a bit of work with Will Conyers, who was the musical director of Jesus Christ Superstar, but is also a, a, a vocal coach. And then I worked with David Roger Smith, who's an opera singer, opera tenor, but who who's also in musicals. He played. He was in Sunset Boulevard and stuff, and played Pianji, the lead, one of the leads in um, Phantom. Um, so he really crosses over, and he still does tenor leads in opera, but he also still does musicals. So I went to him as well. When I came back to New Zealand and was doing some concerts, I went to see Gillian Bowen, who's a um, soprano. Um, opera teacher and deliberately went to them because I wanted the the formal technique um, uh, so I'd know what I was doing more than, than I currently do and since then I've continued to learn and I've, um, I'm have i a much, much better singer now than I was 20 years ago that's for sure um, partly that's the teaching as well so then I started teaching and when I've been teaching and I've wanted to find a really good structure to teach students. Um, I've then gone and sought out other other teachers or other systems that I've bought from overseas, and some of them are really, really, really good. And I've learned from them, and that's improved my technique too. So I'm doing stuff now that I couldn't do 20 years ago. Some, some of it I, I just literally couldn't do, and then some of it now I can do consistently that I didn't I could do sometimes but they hadn't, didn't have the consistency and that was the issue with if you're doing a show eight shows a week um, you know it's not good enough to, to to be good or really good six times a week and miss miss a couple of notes on a couple of a couple of times a week it's not good enough you'll get fired I found that out so what's one of your favorite pieces of music and just tell me why this song has so much story so much heart and it it paints this heartfelt pained um story so well and what's great about any song and jimmy webb said this it's it's not just enough to have the story you've then got to think of a way of approaching the story that's interesting i guess it's a little like being a reporter if you're just doing autobiographical songs all the time for example um then that's going to get bo- quite boring after, after not very long. Um, and even if you have a good idea for a song, you've then got to work out, well, how am I going to tell the story? Is it a third person? Am I singing it from the point of view of whoever you're thinking, the, the, that character? Am I singing it as myself or am I singing it as a storyteller? Um, this song is sung in the first person um, and it's about a, a breakup. But it's just so, I, so poignant because she's saying... Um, this is the last time that we're going to be together, and I know it. But I'm going to make it. It'll be special in my heart, and it's going to take this time before before I can give you up. And some of those lyrics actually say that exact thing. And the singer who sings it has the most astoundingly beautiful voice and phrasing. And when you've got a beautiful song, that's what you want. Um, and everything complements. It's got then it's got the most wonderful piano playing on it as well, which always appeals to me in the song. Um, Bruce Hornsby playing the piano and Bonnie Raitt doing the singing, but neither of them wrote it, which is another great or marker of a great musician that 
you'd never believe that she didn't write this song. Do you know who did write it? I know. No, I don't. I've looked it up, and they're not famous at all. Two, two men, actually. Um, not famous. You'd never have heard of them. And I'm like, wow. What else have they done? Because um, this song is so good. It's called I Can't Make You Love Me. You're listening to the Garden of Sound interview with Jonathan Denson. Can you tell us about your music-making process? At first, I didn't write anything when I was young. That was because my dad was such an amazing songwriter, and I just went, well, I'll never be as good as him, so what's the point? But what happened was a couple of incidents in my life that I went, oh, I need to write a song about it, even though it won't be any good. I want to do it anyway. The first was that a very close friend of mine, Karen, was getting married, and I had no money. And I thought, what can, what can I get them for a, for a wedding present? And I went, I'll write a song. Because I'd never actually written a song before, but I <laughs> went, yeah, sure, I'll write them a song. But then I had a really strong experience. My father died very suddenly from a heart attack, and he was only 47. So um, December a year ago, I was older than him. It was just a weird, it's a weird feeling when you suddenly go, I'm, I'm older than my father. Anyway... I was living in Auckland at the time and met a girl and a couple of friends of hers. And, and then we met up with an Australian hitchhiker and um, another friend was from Switzerland. Anyway, the five of us went in this camper and went, well, we better do a bit of a road trip and show these show these foreigners around. And we went up to Cape Brianga, which I'd never been to and neither had uh, the girl I was with. So we thought that's that's a good thing to do went up there and as most people will will know if you translate it directly it's the leaping place of the spirits where the, the souls of the departed head off back to the homeland of Hawaii and if you stand on the cliff you can see the pacific on the right and the tasman on the left coming together and where they come together there's this huge um on some days it goes out for kilometers um of white caps and those are the the, the white is the uh, the souls. So I'd only lost my father about a year earlier. So that was a pretty overwhelming experience I, I had when I was up there. And when I got back, I decided um, I needed to write a song about it. So I wrote a song called Cape Pranga. And I didn't have a piano, and I can't really play the guitar, but I had a beaten up old guitar. So um, I did what, what, what everyone does. This is the, the process, right? And I could play these two chords, E minor 7, and F sharp minor seven. If you just move your your hand up, do it on the piano. It's like which on the guitar you just move your hand up. <laughs> so in every chord in the song just stays in the same position basically and goes up the fret or back down the fret. You know, and then like, like that. So um, and the two chords that I used. To start with, um, the song is at the end of the earth. Right, but those two song, those two chords, I ripped off um, the doors. You know that it would be untrue, which you, hopefully you wouldn't notice when you hear the song. But you've got to have somewhere to start from. So I hear it now, and if if anything, it's very much a um, it's a Neil Finn esque tune. And as I was writing it. I was moderately conscious that it was that kind of tune, especially as I was playing it or 
hacking it on the guitar. Um, yeah, so I think you always, you usually, from a music point of view, have a an idea or a concept of somebody else's song that you want to use as a as a starting off point. Like I wrote one song that was definitely an Aretha start. Almost went, oh. But um, when you hear the actual song, hopefully you won't notice that I was ripping off Aretha Franklin. Um, but going back to influences, I didn't realise how much the Beatles had influenced my writing until I got together with the band um, who were put together to make the album that I made. Um, and these were guys I didn't know, and they didn't know me, and they just they didn't know the songs, and we just gave them the charts, or they'd heard my demo um, home in the home studio. Um, and they made choices on choice of um, licks they would play or sounds they'd put on the guitars or, or the drums, um, drum rhythms, that... It wasn't until they did it that I realised that subconsciously I, there was a there was a whole oh wow that's a really that was really Beatlesy, and I, I whereas none of the songs did I think I was being Beatles and that particular song when the as soon as the lead guitarist went with that tune um, and he put it up here and went and I went oh I've ripped off Eric Clapton. Um, and I'm not a big Eric Clapton fan, but there's one song of his I absolutely love. Of course, me being me is the soppy one, right? Um, it's late in the evening, right? And it... On the electric guitar. And without even me meaning to, this one Eric Clapton song that I love ended up being in the writing, and that ended up subconsciously, the guitarist picked up on that and he played it. In, in with an Eric Clapton style sound and colour and it was like, oh, I thought I was ripping off Aretha Franklin. Can we now hear something that you have written the full version of? Sure. Um, this song um, is called Somebody's Darling and it's a true story. Back in the old Goldfield days in Otago, days trek from, from any kind of civilization in Queenstown or, or wherever. And there was a guy who ran, ran the town called James Rigney, and he was not a very popular guy. I think he ran the store and he you know, basically held everybody to ransom. No, nobody, and was not a popular guy. Um, one day, a young man's body washed up in the part of the river where they're trying to do all their um, gold panning, and nobody knew who he was. And, of course, days to the next town, and the people just kind of went, well, we don't know who he is. Well, never mind. But for some reason, James Rigney saw this young guy, and something changed in him, and he said, I'm going to give this guy a burial. So he made a proper, um, dug a proper grave and put stones around it and carved a headstone out of wood, and, and, and on the piece of wood he wrote, here lies somebody's darling. What happened later in life, when he died, he looked back on his life and realized that this was the best thing that he had done. Uh, because over the ensuing years, he'd made more of that burial. He built fences and plant, plantings and, and things. And so when he died, in his will, he wrote, um, bury me next to somebody's darling. And that's what they did. So now the two graves sit side by side, here lies somebody's darling, and next to it says, here lies James Rigney, 
the man who buried somebody's darling. And of course, the town doesn't exist anymore. Nothing there. There were 500 people living there, and it's all gone, and the only thing left of it are these two graves. Um, this one act of heart and kindness, and it really appealed to me when I first heard that story, and I went, oh, I've got to write a song about that. It took probably took five years to write. It was so difficult to try and get these streams of thought and all the things I wanted to say and the different styles, or not styles, but the different energies, the different parts of the song to finally put it all together. And musically, I'd have, there's no question that Billy Joel's the second biggest influence on my music after the Beatles. And there's no question that I had Billy Joel's The Ballad of Billy the Kid and also his um, scenes from an Italian restaurant bubbling away in my head as I tried to piece together this song which has uh, different components and it took a long time but I finally got there. Well my tale begins in a cold and desperate southern mining town Where every day you fight to keep your world from coming down One morning as the sunlight hit the frost came a cry of shock for blue and still a poor young man lay washed upon the rock Well we didn't know his name or where he came from And the townsfolk rightly said There's nothing we can do for he's already dead But as I looked into his beautiful face he altered me For I saw in him all the dreams of mine that never came to be Somewhere a mother will never know Somewhere a lover will never show For he was somebody's darling And he was somebody's love So let me lay him down In the cold forgiving ground With a stone saying clear Somebody's darling lies Coming here, tending to the grass And tending to my past Made a picket fence and a koi tree And best of all, made a quiet place for me
She's all that's left of a cold abandoned southern mining town Where every day they fought to keep their world from coming down Somebody's darling lies here. This is the Garden of Sound interview with Jonathan Densom. I think this next question sort of segues quite nicely. If we're talking about uh, best musical memory or most rewarding project, because this tracks off your debut album. Yeah, that's right. So that was, in a sense, a dream come true to get this out. I never thought it was going to happen in the end. You know, I've been writing songs. Um, for 20 years or more and had performed some of them occasionally at um, one-off gigs, basically. Uh, but I didn't have a band and, and I wasn't in the band scene. I was doing musicals or uh, a musical directed quite a few musicals and um, I had to bring in money every week. So then I was teaching and, um, yeah, I just thought it was basically never going to happen. But then, uh, fortunately for me, I got... Um, grade four brain cancer and um so that suddenly made all the things that normally get in the way not get in the way like i don't normally um step up and make i'm not a as a performer i'm fine to get up and say look at me but not in in everyday life i'm not a go-getter person i don't know how to network i don't know how to I'm terrible at those things, like really terrible. There are certain people in this in this town in particular who are monumentally incredible at it and who just get thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of funding from everywhere. And so when I was diagnosed and had gone through the first part of my treatment, or the, the bulk of my treatment actually, um, my wife organized to give a little page and we hoped would raise, you know, Ten or fifteen thousand dollars, which would be enough to go to a local studio and get some friends to come and play the track. So at least we'd have a, a decent record, and I mean that in the in in its original sense, of my songs. My dad's songs were never properly recorded like this, and he died at forty-seven, and I was forty-seven when I was diagnosed. So I wanted to make sure that happened. But we actually raised more than fifty thousand dollars, and then also got some interest and some offers from the best studio in New Zealand which is Neofin's Roundhead Uh, and they offered me a really good rate and they also and they said so you know what's your band like I said don't have a band mate oh okay so what about your manager and your producer don't have a manager and um, who'd be a good producer and they said oh right well Greg Haver's the best producer in the country and um, we'll see if we can get him interested and I'm like oh okay great and then, lo and behold, he calls up and says, "I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in Christchurch next week. Do you want to meet?" He came and stayed at our place because <laughs> we live out in the country, um, and we had a great time. And he, uh, he, he said he loved the music and wanted to do whatever he could to help. So he signed on as the producer again at a, at an absurdly generous rate. And so we ended up making, and he found the musicians. He listened to the songs, the bands I was influenced by, and put them together. And uh, we went up to Auckland and made a record. And it sounds like I bought one. I thought I'd get something, I'd get a record. I didn't think I'd get a record, mate, you know. It's just, yeah, it sounds 
as good as I could have dared hope. So, yeah. So what's your biggest unfulfilled dream at this stage? The biggest unfulfilled goal is to get an original musical produced, hopefully all the way to Broadway, but at least to get it produced. I have one such musical ready to go. I've had two rehearsed readings with a small band and professional actors uh, reading it who've learnt the music, so they spend a few days rehearsing and then presented it. So if it were a play, it would just be a reading, but with the musical, you've got to have a bit more prep than that. But it's not a workshop. It hasn't been fully workshopped yet. And this whole process of putting up a musical is so much more complicated and expensive than people realise because you have to go through these... Uh, levels of progress so we've now got the show up to a point where it is has been tested in front of an audience and it was very very well received and now we're ready to workshop it like actually get a uh, rehearsed professional actors for a couple of weeks at least if not three and then present it for a week on stage um, stage probably black box staging might be a little bit of movement and indicative costume and sets um but that's what the next goal is, and then to hopefully take that. And I've also got a couple of other ideas for musicals. That one was co-written with some friends from Australia, and we've been working on it well, more than 10 years. What's it called? It's called King of the World, and it's uh, two of the songs from King of the World are actually on my album. So it's definitely rock, pop, singer-songwriter, and also some swing. It's, the, it's kind of the edgy end of swing you know, Robbie Williams singing swing, not Michael Bublé doing swing. Um, yeah. So uh, we're very excited about it. We just need to find some funding, yeah, basically. Is there any uh, particular track that you'd like to play us out? Yeah, I'm going to do, again, another song that's very much story-driven and is, uh, when this happened to me, I, mean, I have to write a song. A, a good friend of mine um, attacked his ex-wife and then she lived and then committed suicide himself. Um, and when I found out, um, I couldn't sleep, literally. I mean, and what had happened and what I found was happening was I couldn't believe that he could have done this. And then I'm lying in bed and I'm just thinking, what was he thinking? What can have been. You know, you see, the, you read about these things or hear them on the radio or the telly, and you go, but to have it with someone that you know and, and go, what was he feeling, this guy that I loved? What to have done this? So, but I couldn't sleep at all. So I got up and I just sat down on the table and went, the only way I'm actually going to be able to get any sleep at all is I've got to write down my thoughts and let them out. And I literally wrote the first line, I can't sleep tonight. And I started writing effectively to him. And I started just saying, I've just got this it, this movie that's running in my head and it's seen from your point of view where, and uh, I've still got the writing, it's in that notebook over there. And I came across it recently. It's like, it ended up being about literally 20 pages that I wrote out and eventually I got back to sleep. And then sometime later I thought, right, I'm going to make a song of this. Um, and when I read back and I hadn't read them for a long time, I found those original notes and there's quite a few of the original notes that ended up in the song uh, word for word um, and then I thought about that what kind of music am I going to write set it to and I went well I don't want it to be a big downer like if you don't really know the story you want to be able to hear the song and maybe later go oh what's, what did what did he just say you know that kind of I want someone to 
to be able to enjoy the song without having to get right into it. So I decided to write a funk song. Um, another one of my influences is a band called Blood, Sweat and Tears, um, who along with Tower of Power, brass, a lot of brass, a lot of funk, um, and I've always loved their kind of music. So I decided to write the song not as a morbid, oh, what have you done, ballad, but as a, as a, as a funk. Um, the story is all still in there. If you, if you want to listen closely, if you don't want to listen closely, you can just enjoy the, enjoy the trumpets. I can't sleep tonight I guess that's not surprising Keep running scenes in my head That are far too traumatizing The movie is surreal I see it all from your point of view Taste the bile in your throat But I can't stop what you'll do And I see you running through the streets of Bentley What have you done, you crazy fool?
Thank you for joining me today. This week's guest was Jonathan Denson, and his debut album is out now. It's available from jonathandenson.com. Now, this month is New Zealand Music Month, and on the 31st of May, I'll be presenting a special one-hour countdown of your favourite New Zealand tracks. If you'd like to have a say in what gets played, head along to gardenofsound.nz right now. And remember to tell me why you've chosen that song, because I'll be reading out some of those reasons when I do the countdown. There's also a case full of Taha Sparkling Tonic to give away too. That address again, gardenofsound.nz. It's all in support of New Zealand Music Month. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm Ian Turner, and this has been Garden of Sound, presented by The Nephilist. <laughs>